Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Podcast, we're talking about excellence. And you know what would be an excellent way to spend April 30th through May 3rd? Join me and many of my friends in Malibu, California for a harbor, the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. Uh, this year, friends of the show, Don McLaughlin and Jerry Taylor, do an outstanding pre-conference called No Longer Strangers, Practical Steps for Race Reconciliation. Guest speaker, Rabbi David Wolpe from Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, and plenty of others will be there. Jonathan Storman, he's there. Josh Ross, he's there. Sarah Barton, she's there. A lot of great people are going to be there. Rick Ashley, he's there. Chris Seidman, he's there. Um, and uh, there, there's going to even be some stuff about uh, God over good. We've got a book signing, a couple classes. So come uh, come join me. Malibu, California, April 30th through May 3rd for Harbor, the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. One of my favorite events of the year, favorite times of the year. So uh, join me out there. Hope to see you there. Now, let me tell you about uh, podcast for today. So I get books in the mail uh, on the reg, as the kids would say. That's short for regular dad, in case you're wondering what that means. Uh, and so I got a book in the mail uh, a while back by the former Ritz-Carlton president and uh, former co-founder, a guy whose name I had never even heard, and I had to Google how to pronounce, Horst Schultz, which I think is correct. And uh, he, uh, he had a book that came out. This isn't really a subject that I typically uh, am interested in, but uh, the book actually looked somewhat fascinating. And so I told uh, the publicist who sent it to me, yeah, yeah, I'm up for this. I'll check this out. And uh, we ended up doing a podcast a few weeks ago. Uh, it was a few weeks back, and I found this conversation to be really good. This is a, a riveting guy. Uh, you'll notice a very strong German accent on him, and uh, that was pretty special. Uh, but also, uh, this is a guy who um, had a lot of wisdom to share. Uh, conversation about hospitality. Uh, somehow his famous phrase of ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen uh, became a segue into the image of God and how that affects how we see people. Uh, overall, just a fun conversation. And uh, I hope you find this one to be a good one, too. Uh, we've got um, we've got a handful of stuff lined up for you in the future that's going to be uh, more on the typical kind of theology, spirituality conversations. We've got Nani Bols Weber coming up, uh, Richard Rohr, Miroslav Volf, uh, some of those uh, more staple kind of guests. But I think this is a nice little... Uh, uh, nice little fun conversation talking with a guy who uh, helped found the Ritz Carlton. Uh, one of the things that you'll notice also in the podcast is uh, I I don't want to say shamelessly, but I not so subtly drop hints of hey, give me a give your boy a hookup, give me a coupon, let me come stay at one of these amazing hotels. And uh, surprisingly, he resists the charm that I give to him trying to get this uh, hookup. So. Uh, Lindsay and I are not going to the Ritz-Carlton or the uh, the new luxury line of hotels that he runs, which I believe is called the Capella Group, despite me being you know, Church of Christ and being quite comfortable with Ah Capella, was not invited there. So, <sighs> sadness. Anyway, without further ado, uh, here's me kind of making an awkward beginning of the conversation, which is nothing new for any of you. I'm going to be real uh, honest. I haven't ever stayed at the Ritz-Carlton. I'm probably not your main demographic. The... Um, and so when I got the invitation for this podcast, I was like, well, that sounds interesting. And I've researched you. You're a very interesting guy. So I'm very excited now to get to know you. <laughs> Thank you. Nice to meet you. Yeah, yeah. Outstanding. Uh, y- your story is so compelling of starting off uh, as a kid uh, and 
10-year-old say you want to work in the hotel industry, your family says, don't get jealous of these upper-class people when you go to the hotel. That's, uh, and so obviously you grew up uh, wine country, not a lot of resources it sounds like, and then you, you turned into uh, a legend in your industry. And the first thing that came to my mind when I heard that wasn't it, it grew up. In, yeah, I, I said uh, it was actually a very small village. There was no hotel. I have never been in a hotel, never seen a hotel. Mm-hmm. But somehow it was in my mind to work in the whole hotel business. And you were 10. Is that right? When you decide this is what you wanted? To 11, do? 11, 11, 11. Yeah, yeah. And but with 14, I left the village. Uh, my parents found a job in a hotel. They looked for the best hotel in the region, which was about 100 kilometers away. Very far at that time. Yeah. So I left home when I was 14. Wow. Okay, tell me about the, the line. You, you have this line in the book where I think it was your mom who said, these are you know, upper class people don't, don't get jealous of... Uh, of what they get to experience. There's a, there's a thing in the book of Proverbs, in the Bible, where uh, the writer says, if you ever eat at the table of kings, put a knife to your throat because his delicacies are deceiving. And he's saying, if you're a normal person and you eat at a king's table, this is bad for you. You'll get very jealous. Yeah, well, there was the danger to see. I mean, I was, uh, she made me aware to have the right behavior and so on, that those would be very important people. That was typical that time. Mm-hmm. They're very important people. So by, by all means, don't get envious. Mm-hmm. Don't get envious, but be glad in your profession. Be, be satisfied with what you are doing and behave yourself accordingly. Mm-hmm. That was the message. And in fact, a very similar message was given to me when I arrived there by the general manager. Don't get envious. They are very important, ladies and gentlemen, we are here to serve them. We are, don't, we are, we are not to be envious of them. Mm-hmm. What helped you not be envious? Or, or what do you think can help someone not be envious? Oh, well, I, I didn't even, uh, after that occurred to me, I was just happy to, have, to work in a hotel. My dream to work in a great hotel, my dream to be in that surrounding, I was grateful to work in a beautiful surrounding where the guests paid to be, and I was there to learn. Okay, most people think of going to a job as, I'm here to get a paycheck. You just said, I was there to learn. How, do you, how does that yeah. different attitude shape how you engage with your work? Well, well to start with, that, that's a typical German upbringing. You become an apprentice, a learner oh, in the okay. beginning, and you don't, get, you don't get paid for the first three and a half years. You, but you, you, you work... You work, but I could. I was staying in a hotel in a dorm room, and once a week I went to hotel school. That's a typical upbringing okay. in every profession. Yeah. Okay, so that's maybe just the German mentality, not the American and, mentality. And, and in fact, my father said before I left, now steal everything you can with your eyes. With otherwise, learn, 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 steal all the knowledge you can with your eyes. That's a great line. Steal everything you can yeah. with your eyes. Now, in the book, you talk about stealing uh, a piece of steak, a fillet that you were taking to yeah. a customer <laughs> and you decided to put it in your back pocket because it was going to be thrown away. As someone who has been a waiter before, there have been times that I've seen good th- food about to be thrown away and I thought, hey, I could eat this for yeah. dinner right now. Um, yeah. it, so it's easy to want to not just steal with your eyes, but steal with, with, with your hands. What did that yeah. experience teach you? 
Well, and the, well, the, 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 the maitre d' who noticed it, of course, gave me a big lesson. I put it in the back, back pocket of my, 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 uh, my tail suit at the time, and he came and put some, some gravy into it. <laughs> so I had a real lesson not to do it ever again. Mm-hmm. But it was just one of those funny moments. It was that maitre d' who impacted my life dramatically. Mm-hmm. And that's why I tell the story around him. He was strong, but he was a teacher. He taught us. In fact, in the very beginning, when I came to work, there, he said, now, don't come to work here. Come here to create excellence in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. That's, what I, that's what he did. And he really did that with everything with his behavior, with his looks, with everything. Yeah. You tell that this is the maitre d' who could speak multiple different languages, and we go table to table from maybe yeah. English to, to French to, to German, which is an amazing yes. skill. And you said later that, I, if I remember correctly, that this is the person who inspired your famous slogan of ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen, correct? Yeah, yes. What, what happened is in my hotel school once a week, after two years, the teacher said, write an essay now, three pages about what you now think about your profession. Going back, uh, working again, I said, what will I write? And the maitre d' just done, I saw the maitre d' approaching a table and realized, I've seen it before, but I didn't realize it. He, the guest on the table was were proud that he came to them. Hmm. And I watched it. This was true. This was a reversal. After all, they were very important, the guests, and not we. And I realized that reversal was true because he was excellent in what he was doing. Mm. He defined himself as a person of excellence by everything he did. And when I thought about the essay, I wrote that essay and said, we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. If we are excellent in what we are doing, if we define ourselves as excellent, it doesn't matter what we do in life. We can define ourselves as people of excellence. Mm-hmm. And that was the essay which greatly impacted me because I got an A, and it was the only A I ever had. <laughs> well, I'm assuming you've been graded very highly on many things throughout your life uh, after your schooling. Uh, but uh, when I was reading this idea, ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen, it took me to my training in theology. In theology, one of the earliest texts we have from the Jewish scripture is that you don't murder someone because we are all created in the image of God. And there's an understanding that all of us have inherent value. Therefore, the way that you treat people is changed because of that. When you think of moving the idea from I'm servant, taking care of an important person, to we're all ladies and gentlemen, what does it do for the mindset compared to if someone does see themselves as a lowly, quote-unquote, servant? I mean, it clearly impacted me. It it, it made it very clear that every employee later, when I I used this as as the motto of Ritz Carlton was very clear statement to everybody. Everybody's equal here. We are all ladies and gentlemen. We are, in fact, we are equal to the guest, except our profession is to serve them. It may give the message to our managers. Look, every employee that you have is a lady and a gentleman, equal to you as ladies and gentlemen. In fact, uh, Jesus' words helped me a lot there too. Love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. All equal. Love them all as yourself. And why wouldn't you love your guest? Why wouldn't you love your employees? Yeah. yeah. Well, obviously, one of uh, a core value of Christianity has always been hospitality. 
And the idea yeah. of taking care of other people, the stranger, the guest, the, the refugee, taking care of other people, central to it. So I, you know, I love that Jesus inspired some of that. But there are times that, even back in, in my days when I was a waiter, um, or, or now as a pastor, that there are people that make it very difficult for you to see them as equally a lady or a gentleman because they don't act too charitably back to you. What helps you treat someone like a lady or gentleman when they are acting that way? Well, uh, you, you don't let them define you. You define yourself. Hmm. You define yourself and you are the professional and you stay over it and be excellent at the same time. Some employees told me in the beginning when I coined the phrase, we are ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen, some employees came to me, well, not all guests are ladies and gentlemen. That's not our business to determine. Hmm. Our profession is to, to be the ladies and gentlemen and not allow them to define us. Yeah, yeah that's... That's good. That's good stuff. So you start off uh, a busboy. You obviously work your way up. You you start uh, the 51st Ritz-Carlton Hotels. And before that, the company was not called Ritz-Carlton. It was called Monarch. Is that the name of the company originally? Well, well, yeah, but it didn't have any hotels. But it was just a... It was just a a company. I worked for Hyatt before that and was uh, done. There was somebody who had two hotels in construction they named it Monarch Hotels. I, I, they wanted to create their own brand. I was told that operationally, I could do, run that company and do what I wanted. Mm-hmm. I asked if we can do it on the top end. They said, yes, I moved to Atlanta, mm-hmm. two hotels of construction. In the meantime, we were able to buy the Ritz-Carlton in Boston, which carried the name Ritz-Carlton. Mm-hmm. It was an old elaborated hotel. We purchased it in a great location. We closed it for renovation six months later, but we adopted the name. Six months later, we opened our first Ritz Carlton here in Atlanta. That is in Bucket in Atlanta. Yeah. That was the first Ritz Carlton opened in January 1984. What is the... Si- and then, of course, yeah. Well, uh, and since- a year later, we opened, we reopened Boston. Yeah, and obviously... Uh- even as someone who's never been to a Ritz-Carlton, I am familiar with what Ritz-Carlton means as a brand, and it has a great deal yes. of clout and significance. But yeah. you, you bought a different hotel and took their name and, and took it to the other hotels in, yeah. and because I guess you saw value in the name Ritz-Carlton. And in my industry, there are churches that, that change their names. Uh, sometimes they want to move away from like the denomination that they're tied to because that's affected how yeah. people think about them before they come through the doors. How would you like apply that idea to, to what I do of what is the value of a name? Why was it such an important thing for you to, to change the name Monarch to Ritz-Carlton? Uh, frankly, at the time, the, the, look, the hotel itself and the location in Boston was the important reason why we purchased it. Mm-hmm. But the name Ritz-Carlton came with it and it was registered. It, we didn't have to go through the agony oh, and, okay. and riches and name around the world anymore. That was all done. And it had some kind of, it was known somewhat, even though in the meantime, the hotel was totally dilapidated and was a negative. So we had to overcome that. But nevertheless, the name was known. Once a name is known, that helps dramatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, of course, now we had to establish what that name means. Mm-hmm. That was a new thing we had to do. That name meant now a new excellence. It was, mind you, when we 
purchased hotel. It was a dilapidated hotel. Mm-hmm. Oh, and so you, in a sense, gave the value to the name Ritz Carlton. It, it, we, we put we put the name back into the company. Gotcha. It used to be very well known, uh, and, and but all uh, in the thirties, it was the name was well known. Gotcha. And, and, and very positive, yes. Well, one of the things that it seems that has become synonymous with Ritz-Carlton is that people are treated well and people, uh, customers, uh, get what they want. And so that's one of the, the high values that you've, you've described in the book is giving customers what they want. Um, there's a famous line by Henry Ford who said, uh, if I gave my customers what they wanted, I would just give them faster horses. And so when he created yeah. the car, he didn't necessarily give the customers exactly what they wanted. He gave them what one day they knew, one day he knew they would like even better. How, how do you balance of like giving customers what they want and then trying to give them maybe more than they've imagined already? Yeah. In, in fact, we did word analysis and studies with customers. We hired word ana- analysts to know not what they said, but what they meant. Hmm. For example, I have, there's an interesting story there. For example... And they said, I want to know how they want to feel, uh, really want to feel. And they said they want to feel at home. So we had a word analyst study what that meant to be at home. And it turned out they didn't want to feel at home. They wanted to feel like in the subconscious memory, they remember their mother's home. Wow. When in the mother's home, everything was done for them the way they liked it. And the key element was... When something went wrong and they went to their mom and said, Mom, there's a real problem. There's a real issue here. Mom said, come here and talk them in their arms. Mom didn't say, I called the manager. Hmm. So with other words, we learned right there that if a guest has a problem, that that whoever they referred to that that problem, that that person has to say, please forgive me, I'm here for you. And therefore, we empowered our employees, every employee, that they can make a decision up to $2,000 hmm. to take care of that guest. Now, that is to say, if the guest in the morning comes for breakfast and the waiter says, uh, how did you like your stay? And he said, I didn't because my TV changer didn't work. Now the waiter owns the TV changer. The waiter is done to say, forgive me. I will take care of you. In fact, I feel bad, I buy your breakfast. And then make sure the TV changer gets repaired. So you see, and so we looked at very deep feelings of the guest and responded. At the same time, we moved too fast sometimes. And for example, we moved into, uh, I, I, when we began, we had, when there was a message, we wrote the message down, delivered, hand delivered. There was no voicemail on time. And then came voicemail. Mm-hmm. So we were excited about it. We put it right in. And the guest said, what, are you too lazy to give me a handwritten message? Hmm. We had to stop it until everybody was used to it. So we want to be on the edge, but not the absolute leader of the edge. We had to come a little bit behind so that our market is used to it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's fascinating that people say they want to feel like they're at home, but what they mean is actually something much deeper than that. One of the things that yes, in my, much deeper. One of the things in my industry we always talk about is the, the issue that someone says is central or the problem they have or, or, or the, the presenting uh, stumbling block in their life is usually like an iceberg. It's just like 10%. There's a whole lot more going underneath. And so what's the real question exactly. behind the question? And so that's what you guys were doing. That's exactly it. That's why we had analysts 
study what they actually meant, not what they said exactly. Wow, that's fascinating. And so one of the things that you talk about in the book is that just one person's opinion isn't enough. That's such a small sample size. And so you wanted to get bigger groups and bigger groups behind you to give you more information. How did, how did you come across that idea? <laughs> it's, it's, it's very dangerous, in fact. If you would respond to the parishioner, we were unhappy what you said last night, last time, and just do it, you may go against the whole, uh, the whole uh, uh, community. If you're just the one, mm-hmm. it's very dangerous. That's a study of one. And to respond to it, you may satisfy that one, but you may go against the rest of the market. You cannot do that. You have to have careful study and analysis. What is my market? Where is my market thinking? How do I respond to the whole market as a whole? Yeah. And then respond to the individual. So what really, what, what, it doesn't matter what you do, what you buy, what you purchase, if it is service or a product. The expectation is the same. If you buy a bottle of water, your expectation is that there's no defect, mm-hmm. that you get it timely, and the people who give it to you are nice to you. Yeah. Those are the three key expectations. And the, the addition expectation I individualized. So if I do those three things right, I make sure the product is without defect. I make sure it's delivered timely. And most of all, caring. And then adjust to the individual. Mm-hmm. Without making that individual's adjustment market-wise done, I do the right thing. Yeah. The example you use about that in the book is from uh, the person who helped you write it, who uh, had, a, had a funeral in the family, and it was just uh, one uh, oh, yeah. shortcoming after another. And that obviously is in my industry. And so as I was reading that story, I was going, oh, you can't do that. You can't have that one mistake after. That's just unacceptable. And so uh, I completely, you got to give people what they're expecting, and you've got to live up to your word. It seems like it's kind of like, foundational things that everyone should understand that if you are going to offer something, do it well. But how come that's so yes. difficult? Very, very important what you just said. Live up to your work. Is it that is it you have to live up to your promise, whatever the promise is. Mm-hmm. You have to live up to that promise. And that's, that's a brand, by the way. If I, if I, prom- I promise with Brits Carlton a certain service attention, if I don't deliver it everywhere, I'm not a brand. I'm just a name. Hmm. Uh, why is it so difficult? It, it is difficult because employees are not aligned to that thinking. Companies make the big mistake, and I think um, it, it's, it's a moral issue, in fact. Companies hire employees to fulfill a certain function. Check people in my business, check people in, cook food, yeah. wash dishes, clean room. How, it, this is totally wrong. I should hire people to be part of my objective, my motive, and my dreams. Mm-hmm. And the function is just a thing to get to those motives and dreams. If I do that, if I, that means alignment. And if I align my organization behind those objectives, then it can be done. If the whole organization is not aligned behind it, it will never happen. Yep. Uh, one of the things that you say helps align uh, an organization is a vision statement. And as you wrote about that in the book, you completely had me figured out. Like the, you said, there's some people who hate 
vision statements and meetings about this. Uh, you compared it to yeah. the political slogans that come up every four years, and it's, oh, it's sure. new, and then they get thrown away and discarded and pick up a new one. And it, so I was 100% the person you're saying doesn't like these. But you make a strong, compelling argument for, for why we need to have these vision, vision statements and the statement of, you know, for you, ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen, which is? Well, and the, the, the point is that people want to belong and be part of something and want, want to have an objective. Look, even Aristotle studied, uh, uh, talked about the, the fact that human beings cannot be satisfied and fulfilled unless they have purpose. Mm-hmm. How do you give them purpose? If it's just make a great slogan, you give them purpose by, sh- by showing them clearly what's the objective, who are we, by make sure that every employee clearly know what's the objective of the organization, what's the vision of the organization, and show them also the motive of this vision and show them how they will benefit to accomplish that vision. If you show that they're aligned. But I was recently talked to a well-known company and their, their vision statement is well-presented in the annual report, I asked about 20 employees and nobody knew it. Hmm. Well, then, it mean, then it means nothing. It's just a, some words that float in the air and that sound good that maybe even a PR agency wrote. Yeah. But my vision of my company, I have to agonize what it is. I have to say, where do we want to be in 10 years? Who do we want to be? Mm-hmm. And then I have to question myself, and that is key. Is it good for all concerned? Is that vision... Mm-hmm. Good for the employee, good for the customer, good for the investor, and good for society as a whole. And if that is true, then it's not a slogan anymore. Then it's a guideline for all concerned hmm. and of value to all concerned. Hmm. And that's, of course, what I try to explain in the book. Yeah, yeah. And it, that's, a, that's a key element. Yeah, and, and obviously the book is Excellence Wins, and th- there's a lot of great nuggets in there. Uh, even for people like me who are in a completely different industry, but the idea of leadership vision... Uh, the, the, one of the things I liked is that you, you didn't talk about like slogans, but you talked about belief systems and cultures and you, you create like, this yes. is what we care about. And, and I like your line you just said ago is that, is this good for society? Is this, is this good for everyone as someone in the hotel industry and the, the luxury hotel industry? How, how do you yeah. see the world? And obviously now you've moved on from Ritz Carlton to, is it Capella? Is that the name? I, Capella. Capella. Um, Correct. Um, yeah. The, the ultra luxury is that what it's this okay that's correct yeah so yeah. that's it's it's pretty nice i assume that like you have chocolates and stuff on the pillows waiting for you so it's it, i'm assuming it, no no we charge much more <laughs> that's all you just charge more okay all right I'll, yeah. I'll keep that in mind um if my book becomes a bestseller then maybe i'll come stay at your hotel one time but how do you see the world of uh of these high-end luxury hotels in what they serve and what they they function in society as well, uh, what we do, truly, what, what we do is for a discerning traveler and today's global traveler, mind you, that today's global traveler, I, I, I'm an example of it. I travel 250 days a year. Wow. I travel, I'm gone, now I'm down to somewhat less than 200. But I'm gone, I'm gone for three weeks in a row. I go from, and, and where do I go? I fly to Hong Kong. I stay there one day. I take the bus, the, the taxi, mm-hmm. or somebody picks me up to the hotel, have some few meetings, go back to the hotel, fly, fly to Singapore, and so on. You cannot afford not to be able to totally rely on the hotel where you're going to go. Mm-hmm. You have to totally rely on it. For example, if you, if you would then arrive in Singapore in our hotel, 
We don't say check in time is one o'clock or three o'clock if you arrive at eight o'clock in the morning. We will have your room. There is no such thing. Mm. So we we take totally we call you before you come and say what do you need when you come here? Do you have a diet? Do you have an allergy? What is your need? What can we set you up for? So we are truly serving your need, and that is needed by the global business traveler today more than ever. And that is why, of course, we have to charge for that. Mm-hmm. And that business traveler want that one to have this in a good surrounding. But is say I'm saying we do everything as long as it is legal, moral, and ethical. We will do it. Hmm. Okay, I, can you do me a favor? Can you put on my hat for a second and pretend like you're a pastor? Okay, there's a, yeah. there's a section in the New Testament where Christians are encouraged to don't forsake welcoming strangers because some of you unknowingly have welcomed angels. Now, it's kind of a weird idea, but the importance of hospitality was always central to early Christians. W- what do Christians need to know about hospitality? Uh, uh, let me say something much more. St. Benedict wrote to his monasteries in the year 500, mind you, and said, if a, if a traveler arrives, treat him as if it was Christ himself. Mm. In fact, even if you're on, on a fast, break the fast and have dinner with them if they are alone. Not, but, not, uh, 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 but do this after you wash their feet. That's hospitality. Now, I try to get as close as possible to that. Obviously, I cannot get there, but I try to get as close as possible. That's hospitality. Hospitality is, cl- is truly caring for that guest that walks into your establishment. Hmm. If you're a shoe store or a hotel or a church, that's, in fact. That's good. Qu- truly caring for those human beings that walk out of, uh, in there. Truly not only worry what they ask for, but what they actually need, what they actually wish truly care for them and truly accomplish that from the second you make contact to the second they leave. That is your guest who are you, you are there to care for them in your establishment. Mm. It doesn't matter what it is. And that includes a church, certainly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you've inspired me. I think, <laughs> I, actually, I think maybe this, this could be your next calling. Could you make an, an ultra luxury monastery for people like me who want to come pray somewhere and just make it really fancy and nice for us? I don't know if you can make money off not, that, but it's... Uh, uh, well, not, not fancy, but be ready to create all the... Create, for example, the privacy, mm-hmm. the warm areas, etc., etc., that you need to really retreat and really be close to God. Now, I, I want that in my home. We have areas in my home, I, I know. So, yes, it could be ultra-luxury relative to the need of that particular calling. Mm-hmm. It's not relevant. Luxury is not fancy. In fact, yes. In fact, when we started Ritz-Carlton, in the mind of the customer, luxury meant chandelier, marble, real paintings. Not anymore. Today, the ultra-luxury is do it, do for me what I need my way, hmm. individualized. That is, no, they want that in a, in a, in a great surrounding. Mm-hmm. In the surrounding that they're used to, that guest. But they say, I need to come to Singapore or to Shanghai or wherever we are. And when I come there, I need somebody to truly take care of me and my need that may, may, may have or that occur hmm. when I'm there. 
And I want that in a very caring, sincere way. That's what we offer. That is real luxury today. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I like your differentiation between fancy and luxury, and that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, that it's not about a chandelier; yeah. it's about taking care of people and giving them what they need so they can do their their task in the world. Well, well, if I would go in a church, I would expect to be welcomed by heart. I see the the, the greeter that are there, like may as well put a computer there. Sometimes say, "Good morning, welcome." You know, and they say, "No, I want to feel." I would like to feel that they're truly happy that I'm walking in there, mm-hmm. that I'm really becoming part, even though I haven't, dead, haven't been there before, that I'm part of a community suddenly, a community that cares for me and have a, gives me a sense of belonging. Yeah. Everybody wants that. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. And, every, and everybody needs it. <sighs> That's so true. That's so true. Well, Sir, thank you uh, for giving me 30 minutes. It was an absolute honor to talk with you. Uh, the book, Excellence Wins, uh, it will be out right around this podcast will be airing, and uh, I encourage everyone to go get a copy of it. Sir, thank you for the time. And God bless you, and thank you for what you're doing. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.